was coming in and out of consciousness. She'd sort of been half knocked out as well. We unsaddled all the horses. We made a little bed on the back of the car for her. Put a stick between the legs and, and bandaged. Well, we didn't bandage, we used the reins of the horses. Both her legs together. And we crawled home, but in the process, Rob would come home on the motorbike and rung the flying doctor. The the child, it's okay at the moment. Is it a big property? That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast series about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Wiradjuri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. Gilberton Station is located in far north Queensland, almost a seven-hour drive west from Cairns and about six hours west from Townsville. It's a stunning 88,000-acre cattle station overlooking the Gilbert River and with a rich cultural and pastoral history. They also have a five-star tourism experience, which they've added to their offerings since 2001. People can get there through chartered flights as well as helicopter transfers, and they have their own landing strip, just five kilometres from the homestead. My guest in this podcast is Lynn French, the manager and the owner of Gilberton Station. G'day, Lynn. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Gilberton is such a stunning part of the world. Could you describe what it looks like? Well, it's a bit hard to describe to people because um, people sort of have a vision that, um, you know, you're sort of, out on the Prairie Plains, but we're situated um, 450 k's directly west of Townsville and um, we're on the headwaters of the Gilbert River and we're a very, very hilly country and we're lots of rocks. Uh, we're called, um, so in the fauna world, it's it's actually called the Savannah Woodlands. Wow. Yeah, we've got lots of trees, lots of hills and um, lots of creeks and the Gilbert River runs right through the middle of us. Um, it's not flowing at the moment because we haven't had much of a wet season, but um, it does have water in it for probably three months of the year. What do you love about that landscape? Every ridge that you drive over, there's something different. You know, the the landscape changes a tiny bit. You know, you go into red country, then you go into granite country, and then you go into slate country, and you never know what you might see over the next ridge. I don't think I could live on open downs country. It's just like you're just looking in the horizon. But here, you've always got something to see. Yeah. 88,000 acres. Do you feel that the land that you walk on is is something that you're intimately familiar with? I know that that's with my farm. I, I, I know and watch um, the different seeds. Seasons and and the way the landscape responds to different climatic um, situations. Do you see the same for yourself, or is or is the property so big that you just never really get to do that? Oh no, we we know, and my husband's of course a lot better than me because he's lived here all his life. He knows every square inch of it. There's nowhere that you 
he can't tell you about every gully and, you know, such and such tree and um, there's a story to everything. Um, I wouldn't say I know every square inch of it, but put it this way, you wouldn't lose me on it, that's for sure. <laughs> now, uh, being in far north Queensland, I presume you have wet and dry seasons, is that right? Yeah, so um, our wet seasons generally, you know, we can get storms November, December if you're lucky. January is known to be dry, but our wettest month is generally February, March, April, and it's been a bit light on this year, but we should be okay because we, um, we're we um, very conservative graziers. We stock very lightly, so we've always got a few paddocks spelling all the time. So we should be right this year, we think, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Now, Gilberton's been run under seven generations of of your family, Lynn. Would you give a synopsis of the history of Gilberton and the Martell family? So it's my husband's family, so I married into the family. But the family came here in 1869 as Teamsters. Gilberton was a golf field back in the heydays. It was established a town in February 1870, but it was a very short-lived town. But the family came bringing stock groceries into the township and then they'd take ore like gold and um, copper back to Townsville to be processed on horse and wagon, which used to take him six weeks. The same trip we can do now in six hours. So um, we sort of think of them regularly when we're driving down that road. The family quickly um, seen an opening and they started a butcher shop, then took up Gilberton, sort of the same year. And, um, yeah, the rest is history. Um, still here, we've got four generations living on the place and this, our grandkids are the seventh generation. So quite proud that um, custodians of the land and, and looking after it, yeah, and hopefully, you know, the grandkids will be interested too, but we'll see about that, yeah. Yeah. What's it been like for your children and your grandchildren to grow up at Gilberton? Well, I think it's just the peace and the quiet and the security of of um, having the freedom. As you know, know that we've got um, Gilbert and Outback Retreat, a luxury retreat. We get guests coming in a lot, and and um, the little oldest grandson is um, eleven, and we were out on tour with them not long back, and they said to him, "You're such a lucky little boy," and he just sort of looked at them with the weirdest grin. They said, "Oh, look at this," and he said, "But." That's just my backyard. So it's like we do take for granted, I guess. Yeah, just the freedom, eh? They can jump on their motorbikes and like they're a kilometre downstream from us and they can jump on their motorbikes and come up and see Nanny and Poppy and when we're sick of them, we can send them home. (laughs) We feed them up on sugar and send them home. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Being so remote from regional and metro Australia, Gilberton is well within the service footprint of the Royal Flying Doctor Service. And so, Lynn, you've been a medical chest custodian for years. Could you explain what a medical chest is and what it contains and what your role is as custodian? Yeah, so I don't know, I was probably at least 40 years, I guess, handling a medical chest. A medical chest is like a, a um, steel box with trays and all the medical items on those trays and numbered. So the top tray is A and then B, C, D and everything is numbered and itemised so that if we do have to ring the flying doctor with some problem, he can 
or she can suggest, you know, oh, I'll go to tray A and get 159 and, you know, four times a day, blah, blah, blah. But it's an essential thing for us out here and a lot of people take for granted, um, you know, say, oh, the flying doctor, but, you know, we... I think there's many a mother in the bush that said, thank God for the flying doctor. Yeah, how often do you have to delve into that medical chest to assist someone? Oh, look, it can come and go, you know, it can go months and not, and then all of a sudden you have a influx, you know. it's um, There's always something. There's always someone falling off a motorbike or having a smash or an accident, you know, but um, you can go months and months and not have to touch it, and then all of a sudden you sort of have a run, you know. It's just what life's yeah. like. Do you have Do you have any formal medical training, Lynn? No, nothing, but over the years... The flying doctors taught us a lot. You know, we hosted um, the very first field day when we went from clinics to field days with the flying doctor. And at the time, we sort of thought it was a crying shame, but it was actually the best move I think the flying doctors ever made because um, with these field days in the mornings, a lot of the people from surrounding stations will come. In the mornings, we have, oh, well, I suppose you tutoring lessons, I guess you could say, and it could be on snake bites or medical emergencies, you know, responding to medical emergencies or children's health or women's health, men's health, whatever. And then in the afternoon, anybody who wants to see the doctor can see the doctor and then they fly back to Cairns. So it's an amazing opportunity to update your skills and and you learn a lot too over the years, you know, like when I was a kid, it was back in the radio days and we used to listen to the flying doctor talking to because nothing was private back in those days. And we used to listen to the doctor on the medical sessions in the morning and you could nearly guarantee, oh, I bet you the doctor's going to say, go to tray A or try to tray B and go on this tablet, blah, 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 and um, report back to us in a couple of days. And So we'd have, you know, competitions as a kid to see what the doctor was going to say. <laughs> I've seen some great photos of field days there at Gilberton with people being taught how to manage a snake bite or how to deliver CPR or even how to administer a needle. Do you think those field days make a real difference for people living uh, in the bush and, and having to be so remote from healthcare? Oh, yeah, God, yeah, definitely. Because it's like for all all members of the family, from the little ones to the elderly. So a lot of people would think it's absolutely crazy to teach a child how to give an injection but to us it's important and I think it was on the very first field day that we did actually we were teaching they were teaching the kids how to give an injection in an orange and we've heard some people say oh that's just crazy but do you know what if the men are away and I got hurt the kids have got to know how to ring the flying doctor, they've got to know how to use the medical chest with respect and not that they've got the key and, and it, she's an open slather, but they've got to learn because it might be life and death one day. Yeah. Once um, we had our old caretaker had had a stroke and, and a heart attack and our son was only 10 years old at the time and he found him and he raced home on his motorbike because he used to live a couple of k's from our house. And while myself and our son was doing CPR for an hour and a half, 
our oldest daughter, who was only 11 at the time, she um, rung the flying doctor. She organised the medical evacuation. She rove, drove to the airstrip and picked up the doctor and brought them to the patient, which was about seven kilometres <laughs> You know, and when you tell me that story, Lynn, I'm reminded there's um, there's a publication we put out just a couple of years ago called Dana Good Yarn, which was filled with stories that people had written and sent in to us about their experiences over time with the Flying Doctor. And there was a story in there about a doctor that was new to the service and, and landed in a remote station. This was um, in Western Australia. And this is about in the 60s or so. And he, he talks about how he landed the plane and there was a, a jeep with, um, uh, I think they call it a wily jeep, which had no doors. And uh, there was a, a young kid about seven or eight years old that arrived at the airstrip and while they were disembarking from the plane, he just kept driving round and around the plane and then yelled out to the doctor and said, sorry, I've got no brakes. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually managed to get the Jeep to stop and the doctor jumped on board onto the Jeep and he said, we've got to go, we've got to go. And then he drove the doctor to the station. And yep. the way the story goes, you can just see it, you know, oh, and yeah. the doctor's shock at, at being yep. received in that way. But, you know, your story um, clearly shows that it's not uncommon. Oh, no. It is important that the young ones understand, respect and know how to do a medical emergency because, you know, you might be the only adult on the place and if something happens to you, the kids have got to know. So Yeah, it's your lifeline. Exactly, it is. Yeah. And like I said, you know, there's many a mum out there that said, thank God for the flying dock. <laughs> So. Lynn, over the years, there have been a number of accidents and injuries that have occurred at Gilberton. Uh, could you tell me what happened in 1999 to your daughter, Anna, when she was just six years old? Yeah, well, that was probably the worst one that we've ever had here. We've had quite a few over the years, but I think that was the most traumatic one. And it sort of not only affected Anna, but it affected all of us. And we were out mustering all on horses and we we're about... Um, 20 kilometres from the homestead. It was about three o'clock in the afternoon, bringing, bringing cattle back to the yards. And um, Anna happened to, she was always a little um, pocket rocket on her horse, wanting to jump things and jump gullies. And anyway, she jumped a little gully and she just fell off the wrong place at the wrong time. And she hit an ant bed with her hip. I was with her and she jumped up straight away and I knew straight away because her leg just went out through the jeans and, oh, it was horrific. The most horrible thing that you ever you ever could be. And we had um, handheld radios and I radioed the men and they all come back and it was near a holding paddock so my husband, Rob, was on a motorbike and he... Um, raced back to the mustering camp and got a car and... Hold on one moment, Lynn. So she fell from her horse and landed yeah. on an ant bed, is that what you said? Yeah, so she hit an ant bed as she come down. Yeah. It smashed her femur very close to the hip. I didn't know that at the time, but I knew something was really bad because in the process we cut her jeans off because her leg was just blown up. So it was practically a compound fracture we could see that it was quite bad because the bone had just about pierced through the skin. My God, how was Anna coping with that? She was one hell of a brave little girl because um, we didn't have any painkillers or anything there. 
by this time I think she'd sort of gone into shock and, it, yeah, it was a bit of a worry because we had to get her home before we could even get onto the flying doctors. And I presume you couldn't move her or anything in that state? We had to. She was coming in and out of consciousness. She'd sort of been half knocked out as well. The only thing we could do was we unsaddled all the horses. We made a little bed on the back of the car for her. We put a stick between her legs and, and bandaged. Well, we didn't bandage. We used the reins of the horses both her legs together, and we crawled home. But in the process, Rob would come home on the motorbike and rung the flying doctor um, while we proceeded coming home. And the flying doctor was already in the air on another emergency. So um, it was whichever plane could get to us first was either Cairns, Mount Isa or Townsville. Eight o'clock that night, the plane landed. So the accident happened at about three or four. Yeah. And I presume it, it took at least an hour or so of trying to figure out, good, what do we do? Well, it took then, us um, a couple of hours to get her home and then um, by that time we'd, Rob, we'd made contact with the flying doctor, of course, and that was process yeah. was already in place, but we had to sort of get her painkillers into her, you know. She ended up having, um, we gave her an injection all we could do was we just left her on the back of the car. We didn't want to move her. Yeah. How was, how was she coping? Oh, she was pretty good really because, like, she was, you know, the morphine that set in. But all she was worried about was when she could get back on a horse. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we um, the flying doctor, I flew out with her and it was a Townsville plane that ended up coming. And um, flew to Townsville and then we discovered that she not only had a broken femur, she also had a broken pelvis in three places. Gosh, that must have been one hell of a fall. Did you actually see it happen? I sort of just looked back and, and seen her hit the ground and, yeah, she screamed straight away and I knew something was bad straight away. And a little horse just pulled up and was looking at her as if to say, well, what's wrong with you? Get back on sort of thing, you know. Um, but anyway, it happened and um, it was something that was a bit of a shock to the family because um, for the next three months I stayed in Townsville with her and she had to go into traction. They couldn't plate it because it was too close to the hip. So she had to go into traction and um, that was for three months and I stayed in the hospital with her, which just about drove me mental. And her too, I'm sure. <laughs> Traction is a horrible thing when, you know, they have to put the weights to hold. Yeah, so she had the water bag weights and everything. Yeah. Rob would come down when he could and then he'd stay in the hospital with her and I'd go out with the other kids for the weekend just staying in Townsville. It hadn't set the way they wanted, the pelvis. So it's because um, there was a little bit of movement so the doctors gave her a choice. She could go back into traction for another four weeks or she could come home in a body cast for seven weeks. <gasps> a body cast? What's a body cast? So she was in a body cast from the chest down, just one leg, but it sort of come right down to the tip of the hip. We'd organised for the flying doctor to bring her home because she couldn't sit up in a seat. So they take, took her into... Um, Theatre, put her in the body cast, and that night she um, started passing blood clots so they couldn't bring her home. And um, so the clots must have been sitting there while she was laying for that seven weeks. 
Wow. So that was another nightmare and, you know, and I'm ringing Rob bloody telling him that we could lose our daughter and it was, you know, it was sort of not real good. So he jumped in a car at midnight and come down and um, anyway, they, after about four days, they, you know, doing all the tests, they released her, but we couldn't get the plane. The plane was too busy to bring her home. So um, we made a bed in a car for her to lie down and brought her home and the only thing that concerned her was she wasn't allowed back on a horse. <laughs> and so I don't know how she was going to sit up on a horse, but anyway. It was close on six months before she was walking again and then the moment her cast was taken off, she wanted to get back on a horse, but we made her wait for another couple of months um, just to be sure. But they did say that, you know, later in life that she might have had trouble um, with, with her pelvis, but... Um, yeah, it's never sort of bothered her. She's had two kids and she seems to be okay, you know. They breed them tough at Gilberton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get over it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it was um, it was a pretty traumatic time, that was for sure. Her biggest worry was when any, because she was in the children's ward and any little kids come along, they'd see the water bag hanging off of her traction and they'd want to swing it. Well, and she'd scream blue murder, so... She rang up Grandad on the phone and told him to bring down some barbed wire and posts so she could put a fence around her bed so no one could touch it. <laughs> she certainly kept the staff um, laughing, that was for sure, and she did become very good friends with a um, sister that was at the hospital and um, we're still good friends with her. When she come home, she used to write letters to her and um, they eventually, yeah, we become wonderful friends and still are. So and, and so Anna now still rides horses as much as she did as a six-year-old, I presume? Oh, yeah, God, yeah. Never stops, yeah. Do you think that as a consequence of growing up and living in the bush that people have like a higher resilience and tolerance to accidents and injuries? I think so because you just get on with it part of life. When she was 17, she had another bad one where she flipped the motorbike and she wasn't being stupid. She was just riding beside Rob and they were going to move some cattle and she, her tyre just flipped out on a rock and he was terrified to turn around and see what he might have seen because he didn't think that she would be alive. She thought that she would have broken her neck. She jumped up and she said, Dad, I'm all right. And me couldn't see her face for blood. And her, one whole side of her face was skunt. A terrible big cut in her, cut in her eye. Her nose was sort of half lifted off. I wanted to get back on the motorbike and he wouldn't let her. But he put her on behind him and just told her to hold on to him. But when he started going, the wind started burning the wound where the where it was gaping open. So he had to ride with one hand and his hat over her head to try and stop the wind from getting on it. But anyway, flying doctor come and got her and... and um, Again, Mum went with her and um, in an hour and a half of the accident, she was in theatre in Cairns and surgery. She nearly lost her eye. Gosh. Yeah, the next day they discharged her and an old sister there told her just to keep her face um, smothered with pawpaw cream and she won't scar. Oh, I think she had 76 stitches and one side of her face, there was just no skin left on it. And, but she did. She kept it with poor, poor ointment. She never scarred. The scab just fell off one day. And within five days after that, she was back on a horse working. You know, I think Anna's got more than one life. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
And then the worst thing was that mum had to take the stitches out and I had um, a broken wrist at the time. I'd come off of a motorbike and I had it in um, plaster, so had to have a few rums to um, steady the steady the arm to take all the stitches out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lynn. Before we end off, I just have to ask you about your chat with Prince Charles in 2018. I've seen the videos on YouTube and it was funny seeing the formal questions from the prince compared with the informal answers of your grandson. Can you tell me a little bit about that interview? It was quite hilarious because when the flying doctor asked us if we would be the, I suppose you could say, the recipients on the other end of talking to Prince Charles as being bush people. We agreed and um, but the first thing we had to do, we had to have four days practice following, you know, what the protocols were and, and each afternoon we'd come on and they would have a pillow in one chair and that was Prince Charles and little Robert was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> How old was Robert? He was eight. Anyway, when the day came, um, we had an audience of the family in the lounge room because we had it on the um, TV and and um, old Charlie, he decided he'd just run his own show and and it just happened to be that Carrie and our oldest daughter was um, working at Warrington Station at that time and she'd come off a horse and they thought that she'd broken her shoulder. So she was actually in the air, in the flying doctor, on her way to hospital. And um, we'd told Charles that, Prince Charles, and he said, oh, what's she coming to Cairns? And I said, no, they cancelled everything in Cairns because you're there. I said, she's on the way to Townsville. Oh, you tell her that she must get back on her horse straight away. Anyway, he went on and he sort of started talking about when he was young and asking little Robert if a cow had ever sat on him. But I had to bring him back on track about telehealth and how the importance of um the work that the flying doctor do, and it was quite funny. There was no protocols at all that took place, but um, we did get a lovely letter from him about a month later when he got back home, just just asking how Carrie Ann was. So that was lovely. Yeah, he remembered. It's a lovely video. Just the candid responses of your grandson is just beautiful. <laughs> yeah, no, it was quite funny, but um, considering that we had the four days of um, all this protocol. And um, when it finished, little Robert said, well, that was a load of crap, wasn't it? <laughs> so, <laughs> so out of the mouths of babes. <laughs> oh, I've really enjoyed learning more about Gilberton and about your amazing family, Lynn. Thank you so much for being there and continuing to assist the RFDS make emergency and primary healthcare available. And thanks for all that you've done to help make this interview happen. We've had all sorts of challenges with internet, but we have made it work and I want to thank you for that. Not a problem. You're most welcome. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with family and friends. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join our new Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community, where you can chat to other listeners. And please do try out our new podcast hotline. You can call and leave an audio message with questions and feedback on the podcast. The number for the hotline is 02 7928 We look forward to hearing from you. The Flying Doctor Podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Cullen. Thanks again for listening. G'day, Lana and team. This is Cam from New South Wales. Wanted to call in and just say how much I'm loving the podcast. Uh, the stories are unbelievable. Keep up the great work. Doing fantastic.